Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. So a prominent Massachusetts banker and prohibitionist devises a way to shame those who enjoy the occasional tipple, but inadvertently inspires a beloved 1920s cocktail. That drink is the topic of today's show, and it is, of course, the Scofflaw. Besides boasting a wonderful name, the Scofflaw is a fairly obscure rye-based combo of four very familiar ingredients. Exploring its history and preparation not only allows us a little etymological detour, but sees us do a deep dive on much-maligned grenadine, and the relative merits of juicing your own pomegranates, of which there are none. Jill Coxon is the wonderful member of the bartending community joining us today. Jill not only brings 25 years of experience to our conversation, many of which have been spent as a bar owner as well as tender, but she also happens to be based in Kansas City, which is largely considered to be the wettest city during Prohibition. Don't call it the great state of Kansas, listener, unlike a certain former member of public office. And by all means, do continue to resist and scoff at ridiculous laws, just as we do here on the Cocktail College podcast. Beaming in live, at least live for me, over video and audio for you guys, we have Jill Coxon, Kansas City. Jill, how's it going? Um, it's generally terrible right now, but other than that, I mean, you know, outside of existential dread, it's going great. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, I think that's a very good answer for the times. Um, excited to jump into our drink today, the Scofflaw. I'll go straight off the bat and say this is a great name for a cocktail. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's, it's always been one of my favorites. Um, I, I always refer to it as, as the, the gateway whiskey drink. When people tell me they don't like whiskey, this is kind of my go-to. I said, hey, I bet you do. Um, and this is kind of how I um, at least try to convince them to give it a try. And, you know, it doesn't have 100%, you know, a, a record, but it's, it's got a very high record of convincing people that whiskey might be a category they're into. They just didn't have a drink, you know, yeah. to their life made with it yet. So it's a nice, easy intro to whiskey, which is really nice. Um and obviously, then given the uh, the context of right now and, and what we're going through, I think there's a great parallel as to how that drink was developed and the sentiment of the time during Prohibition versus right now as, you know, Roe v. Wade is, is a, um, been dialed back and um, we're, we're coming up on some interesting times. So, Yeah, definitely. And and I, I think, as you mentioned there, too, this, this being one of those ones that we can discuss on this show that actually does have a rich history or or are pretty agreed upon one. Um, mm-hmm. So can you give us the context there? Can you outline that history and, and, and yes, yeah, you know, tie that line through it? Sure. Um, you know, my understanding, you know, my, my research, and please feel free to add to this, um, is that, you know, the cocktail was uh, developed by a bartender at Harry's New York bar in Paris during prohibition. Um, you know, story goes that most of the professional bartenders, um, you know, during prohibition either left the country, uh, found work in other countries or found other work, um, sometimes as writers, but, you know, we almost lost our, our, 
the lineage of our profession during Prohibition because there just simply wasn't legal work for them. Um, so uh, the, the bartender at Harry's New York Bar in Paris was um, basically came up with the cocktail as an homage to people in the United States who continued to drink uh, despite the laws of Prohibition. Um, and I just wanted to add that extra layer that being in Kansas City, and ironically, we're called the Paris of the Plains. That's our, that's our <laughs> nickname. We have the second, we have the second most number of fountains. Fun fact: the nice. um, public fountains that um, next to Paris, France, um, in, in, in the in the world. So we are known as the Paris of the Plains. So there's a lot of uh, ties to to this cocktail, I guess, um, culturally also, and um, yeah, and and, and also uh, that Kansas City historically is the only city that did not experienced prohibition in the United States. Um, it was very um, mob-driven, um, mm-hmm. organized crime-driven, and the uh, the person at the helm at the time was a gentleman named Tom Pendergast. He made sure that liquor kept flowing in Kansas City during wow. prohibition. So Wonderful. He, he opted out. He's like, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so people resisting there and, and the name yeah. of the drink too. And we were chatting a little bit about this beforehand because I believe... Uh, historically, there is an alternative universe where yourself and I are are doing covering this drink on this show, but instead the drink is named the Boozocrat or the Bushevik. Because um, I was doing a little bit of research here, because obviously, like you said, scoff law, th- this this idea of people scoffing at the law. But it turns out as well that, um, and I'm going to really ruin the pronunciation of this. I've I've Googled it, but a gentleman named Delsever King, I'm probably ruining it. Basically, a banker and a prohibitionist from 1923 Massachusetts, he sets up a competition. He wants to invent a new word. And the word is used to describe people that uh, lawless drinkers... And so he sets up a competition with a $200 reward for that competition, receives 25,000 entries, and Scofflaw is the one that they land upon. So I think there's that, that whole irony there, too, as well, that not only is it people, you know, come up with a bartender in Paris, left the country to pursue bartending, people resisting the law, but specifically in the beginning ultimately related to drinks too, which is great. Oh yeah. yeah. I, 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 thank you so much. I, I actually did not know that extra layer of the history of that drink. So thank you. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. I found that in some kind of New York times time machine weird, you know, they're out there. It's fun, but I'm just like, it's amazing. But either way, you know, just off the top, like I said, great name for a drink. And also I've got a question for you. Well, actually, can you briefly just describe the ingredients for those who aren't aware of it? We don't need to go too much into it, but just list them, because I think this isn't one that most folks are are aware of off the top of their heads. So it, when I describe this drink to people to make it relatable to them, if I'm, you know, if someone says, you know, I, I don't like whiskey or maybe I'd like to try something with whiskey, but I, I don't know what to try first. And I said, you know, I have the perfect cocktail for you. Think of it as a pomegranate whiskey Cosmo. I mean, it just makes it relatable. They know the word Cosmo. They know that there's going to be something fruity about it. It's not going to be super scary. Um, and essentially it's, you know, uh, rye whiskey, um, dry vermouth, lemon juice. And then the, the key is, is real grenadine. Um, it's one of those, I think there's a few drinks that disappeared from the landscape of, of menus, uh, precisely because when, when, 
we went through the food industrial revolution. A lot of people switched to uh, um, industrial and commercial mixers, and grenadine was one of those casualties. That you know uh, that, that red stuff that you buy in the bottles in, in, mm-hmm. in the uh, you know it's it's not grenadine. I don't know what it is. Most people think it's supposed to be cherry. It's not. It's supposed to be pomegranate and the red dye number or whatever that bottled thing that you normally would see in, in, in volume bars is is not the real deal and it makes for a very different and terrible version of this drink um so the, the key is you, you you need real grenadine mm-hmm. um so um and it's not hard to make it all it's essentially if you buy one of those little palm bottles you know of your pomegranate juice you're just making a simple syrup one-to-one that and sugar so um, instead of using water in a simple syrup just use pomegranate juice and some people choose to add some spices to it you know maybe a, a tiny bit of, of anise or um, um baking spices um you, you can add some flavor to it but really you know the, the key the key ingredient is just that that pomegranate syrup the real pomegranate syrup and is that is that an ingredient that you feel like pomegranate juice is not something that i find myself shopping for very often perhaps i should be but um is that something that's quite easy to come across or is it more of a specialty ingredient you know, I mean, I think over the past, you know, 20 years, it's become more and more common. I, you know, I think any, any grocery store, any major grocery store is going to carry that specific brand, that Palm brand. Um, you know, if you're, if you're looking for specialty, like already made real grenadine, you're going to have to look for a specialty, uh, um, maybe a, a craft spirits, you know, a really high end liquor store might carry it. Um, or a, uh, um, and of course you can find it online. I mean, but, um, but I, I would say that that palm is really easy to come across, um, you know, the, those little bottles. And like I said, just, you know, one-to-one that and sugar, you mm-hmm. know, is, is what creates your, your, your pomegranate syrup. And like I said, you can play with that, add any flavors that you like, but that, that palm is very easy to find. And, and to be clear here too, you know, I think the bartending community has made amazing strides in, in basically making as much as possible as they can in recent years. But I'm assuming there's no one out there that's trying to make their own pomegranate juice. This is not a fruit that's very easy to work with. <laughs> um, no, it's so funny because one of the first places that I worked that had a full kitchen, um, I, I don't even remember what drink I was doing, but I was using pomegranate seeds for something. Who knows? Um, and you know, and, and that, that job was so great because those, those kitchen uh, professionals were, were very sweet. You know, they'll, they'll watch you with people like me and myself that don't have real kitchen experience. They'll watch me do something miserably for like two or three times, just so they can kind of chuckle amongst themselves and make fun of me um, as I'm trying to peel the peel the seeds out of the grenad- mm-hmm. out of the grenadine. I'm making a mess. You know, and about the, and about the third time, you know, they're like, okay, the joke's over, and they'll come up to me and say, hey, do you want to see how to do that easier? Um, so it was a really it was great to work around food people who could show me the tricks of things like even just getting the de seeding a grenadine. There's there's tricks to it. Yeah. Um, that, that uh, you know, I feel like kitchens have secrets that they don't share, and, and it's uh, um, it's it's fun when they let you in on, on the secret to make your life easier. Um, so yeah, I would not say make your own pomegranate juice. That sounds terrible. I've never tried that. That's, that sounds like <laughs> cool. um, um, yeah, and, and sometimes you know, I think sometimes our industry goes down these over complex processes for the bragging rights of like, oh, we make our own pomegranate, pomegranate juice. You know, there's already a company doing that that does it really, really well. Yeah, you get a really good product. Just, just, just buy that product. Like you're going to end up with that product, and it's going to. And if you consider the labor, it's going to cost you about 400 times more than it costs <laughs> to buy that that bottle of palm. Just, just, just do it. Good to know your limitations. Absolutely. <laughs> In terms of the modern landscape. I love that this is a drink that you've brought up because I feel like this will be an introduction for some folks. Uh, like we mentioned before, actually, just to share a small anecdote, I was in a bar recently with a group of drinks writers, and they were making it was a rye uh, whiskey event, and 
they were making classics and I ordered a scofflaw and I, I don't think anyone or a couple of people around me had never had one but then proceeded to the bartender knew the spec straight away I was I was like this is wonderful because I'm sure it doesn't get cold out a lot and everyone loved them but from a kind of guest perspective do you think this is is this one that ever gets cold out ever gets ordered you know um I would say it's been called out more you know in the past you know, definitely in the past, in recent years, I mean, you know, it, it's funny, those drinks that never got called out. And now, you know, the things that you're just kind of, especially just given the context, if people walk into a cocktail bar, like I wouldn't expect my, my local neighborhood dive bar bartender to necessarily know how to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm I, you know, but I think if, if I walk into a bar that touts themselves at all as a, as a cocktail bar, I would, that's one that I would expect to be in the canon. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we, we get it called out at our cocktail bars occasionally. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, a it's, I think, I think just depending on context, it's one that's made its way up into the, you know, if you're, if you, if you are, if you consider yourself a professional bartender, there's a certain number of drinks I think you should just have in your repertoire. Yeah. And I think, I think that's one of them. This is one of them. Fantastic. And certainly if it's not, the, the ingredients will be at most serious cocktail bars. I mean, generally yeah, speaking, right? Yeah. These are ingredients we're yeah. familiar with. Um, the formula probably looks very familiar too, apart from maybe the dry vermouth, which we'll get into. So I'm just curious to hear what you're looking for when you make this drink yourself or if someone makes it for you profile-wise, balance-wise. Where is this on the spectrum? Um, so I think it should be, you know, uh, what I guess depending on who I'm making it for, you know, and what I'm trying to accomplish, even in the individual interaction, you know, if I'm just trying to introduce someone to whiskey, they're, they're, they've told me that they're just trying to get into whiskey, you know, they want an entry level thing, I might make it a little softer, um, and, you know, and, and especially when you're in the bar in the commercial setting, um, you know, there's is there a need to make it, you know, the, the original spec is like a, a two ounce, a, a two ounce solid pour of a, of a rye, you know. Um, and, you know, I would, if, if I was making it for me, you know, a Rittenhouse, something that's just going to really going to you know, drive that backbone. But if I'm going to make it for someone who's just trying to get into whiskey, um, I, I might go to an overhaul or something that's a little softer, that's something like a little higher corn content, so it's a little bit sweeter. Um, I think the drink should drink a little bit more tart. Um, so the, the normal specs, like I said, call for, you know, a two ounce of, of the rye and then in theory, a half ounce each of, you know, a, um, a lemon dry vermouth and pomegranate syrup. I usually up that, I usually kind of, I, I soften a little bit, you know, if I'm making it in the bar setting, um, I usually go an ounce and a half of the rye, depending on which rye I use. And then I usually go three quarter, three quarter, three quarter. It just makes it a more, you know, approachable drink. Um, it might not be the original specs. And I think something we need to remember is that when some of these drinks were made, depending on what, what rye they were using, I mean, you, you kind of have to adjust to taste and you also have to adjust to what the guest wants. I think that's something that's gotten lost. Our obsession with, um, um, with recipes, you know, leaves out what the customer likes. I will flat out ask, you know, if I'm making a last word, I, I think the build on a last word is too sweet by itself. Like, like, the, yeah, so I will, I will, you know, edit, edit that a little bit, but I always ask the guests, do you like things a little more sweet or a little more sour? The nice thing about using all fresh ingredients is you can tip that recipe yeah. and we should, and we should be listening to our guests because at the end of the day, it's about creating something that, that they're going to enjoy, not making the drink we want to make. Mm-hmm. And hearing you describe that two upping those those three components to three quarter of an ounce, um, is there also body coming into play here and texture? Uh, at half an ounce, can can it feel maybe slightly thin? Yeah, you know, and I mean, you know, again, I think it kind of goes back to 
you know, if you're, if you're making a, a really flavorful grenadine, I mean, if it, it all goes back to which driver mouth you're using. Um, there's, you know, um, obviously like using fresh lemon juice, like that's not an option. We, yeah. it's, it, this is definitely one of those cocktails where you need to, you, you need to use the real and fresh ingredients. It's just not going to work otherwise. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a you know, getting the balance right between the individual components. You know, I, I think that when you up the, uh, um, the grenadine content a little bit when you go that three quarter, three quarter, three quarter, you maintain the balance between the individual ingredients, but that viscosity picks up just a little bit to make that mouth feel a little bit, you know, you know, less like a Manhattan. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's got some, it's, it's got some stuff going on. Um, so I think that that, and then, and then also the, and this is one of those cocktails where the garnish, the orange twist, that expression of a fresh orange twist on it really seals the deal. Um, you know, we, you know, I, it, it's nice if you want to do the flamed orange twist, like that's a show you don't necessarily have to just those, just those nice citrus oils sitting on top of this drink, really just that aromatic and that bitter orange oil, mm-hmm. um, that, that truly does serve as the bitters to balance this cocktail out, um, really seals the deal. So I would say this is one of the cocktails too, where the garnish is just as important as, um, Amazing. as the actual ingredients. And so we will dive in. I mean, you've given us some wonderful oversight of the ingredients there. We will dive into each one now in a, just a little bit more detail, starting with that rye whiskey. So uh, first question, this is definitely not one where you're like rye or bourbon. You decide you think this should be definitely rye. I personally think it should be rye um, just because... You know, rye got, just, it just adds a, little, a, a flavor layer of spice um, as opposed to, you know, bourbon just is already sweet. Um, so, you know, when, when you're adding, you know, sweet with sweet, if, if somebody did request it with bourbon, I've got no problem making it. What I would probably do then is dial back to grenadine just a little bit, um, because there's already some sweetness coming from that bourbon. Wonderful. And you mentioned the rye content there, you know, Rittenhouse obviously being more spice forward, maybe Overholt being that Kentucky style these days, at least not, not classically, not historically. How much right. are you thinking about proof though, too? What's Rittenhouse, does Rittenhouse say, uh, uh, 50% ABV? Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's bonded. So that's where you know, that's the one I, I tend to lean on. One, I, I love Heaven Hill. I love that company. Um, yeah. You know, and that I think that falls into their portfolio. And um, it's a, uh, you know, I like Rittenhouse because it just it, you know those those bonded whiskeys are at such, in my opinion, a, that perfect proof to carry the backbone of a cocktail. You know, um, a lot of times, you know, so for example, like a Sazerac, you know, is, is originally cognac. You know, um, but. We've, we've learned, you know, the, the adapted version, most places will make it with rye. I usually ask what people want and, and rye just does a, you know, in my opinion, just does a, a better job of, of carrying the, the weight of the other ingredients. Um, it, it just seems cleaner. It seems, you know, it adds a spice component. Um, and, and I, I just think rye is, is a, a, the more, the more traditional spirit to use, but mm-hmm. also I just think it carries the balance of the cocktail better. Wonderful. And then next one we're looking at here, dry vermouth. Um, got two ways to look at this. First of all, dry is the one you're going with. So um, preferred brands here that you're looking for, I guess, from a flavor standpoint, profile standpoint, but also um, just realistic working behind the bar, bottom line, that kind of thing. You know, and this is one of those cocktails where honestly, because there's so many other ingredients going on, you know, we could probably spend hours talking about what obscure vermouths every craft cocktail bartender is into these days. But again, if you're trying to make something approachable, you know, I'm not going to send people on a wild goose chase to go find some obscure Spanish vermouth that like <laughs> one or 30 miles away carries. Um, so this is one of those cocktails where, you know what, I'm happy using Dolan Drive. You know, it's fine. Um, 
I'm a fan. I'm a big fan of the ransom vermouths. I really dig them. I love that, you know, they list all of their botanicals on their label. And so you you can, you know, um, you can pick out, um, which, which of those ingredients or which of those botanicals to, you know, uh, enhance or suppress, you know, so if you did want to get kind of a little more creative and make a grenadine that maybe featured some of the botanicals that Ransom tells you is, is on their label, you can start playing with bringing out some of those flavors a little bit more, but that's not necessary. And, and I think when it comes to making things approachable, you know, for whether it's college kids, whether it's co- people cocktailing at home, you know, let's not make it ever complicated. Let's go with something I know that they're going to find at every liquor store they go into and it's stolen dry. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and wonderful product as well. Re- you know, yeah. like really great vermouth. Um, you were speaking about if you're asking someone whether their profile, whether they want something that maybe leans sweeter or more sour or more dry. I'm wondering, is there a way in which you can up, you can switch to Bianco vermouth for this rather than upping, upping the sweet component, the grenadine. So you maintain that balance, but for someone that's looking for a sweeter version of the cocktail. Yeah. And you know, you know, I also like, you know, the, the, the Koki Americano is one that, you know, I like a Ooh. lot. You know, because and, and there you get the the kind of a sweet start, but the, but it doesn't get oversweet because it's got it's a quina, it's got that cinchona slightly bitter finish. Um, so like that's one that I I will reach for a lot to kind of you know play with um, and sub out. And that's really the beauty of these cocktails is that you know once you know the template, I always tell people the dirty secret is there's only seven cocktail builds you know on the planet, and it's in a once you understand the templates then you can start playing with your knowledge and uh, of, of actual ingredients and, and different spirits by category. So you just switch, you switch out the sweet component or you switch out the bitter component or you switch out the base spirit. And, you know, now, now you're just, you know, playing Mr. Potato Head essentially with, you know, with the, the seven cocktails that exist. And so, yeah, so absolutely. I mean, that, that's definitely an option. I love that idea. That I love that suggestion of Cookie Americano. That's one I really want to try very soon. That sounds wonderful. Um, Lemon juice, fresh is best. It's one that comes up a lot on this show. So I think we've said a lot that we need to say about lemon, but any additional thoughts you have? No, um, I will say though, that for sustainability purposes and granted, again, I'm not, not for, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the clientele of, of, of people just wanting to get into it, just keep it easy, fresh lemon juice. Um, you know, I, I like to use lemon juice within three days. I mean, I know we could go down some rabbit hole of the perfect oxidation, acidity, elevation, whatever the nerds get into these days. Um, but you do want to keep it fresh. You know, I would say lemon juice is probably best. It just starts to get a little funky after, you know, I would say three days ish, um, keep it refrigerated. Um, uh, but I will say that, you know, a movement we're moving toward a little bit is, you know, the concept of super juice. So one given the cost of citrus and one, just the consciousness into the consciousness of, availability of citrus and sustainability of, of product availability in different regions of the country and the world. Um, citrus doesn't grow in the Midwest. It really shouldn't even be here. And, and how do we start talking about responsible bar cr- programs that offer fresh ingredients responsibly? And there's some really great, if you Google search super juice, um, there's some really great um, citric acid oleo recipes that enable you to make a quote unquote fresh lemon juice substitute that, that does work. I mean, I, I, don't, I won't say for sure that it works in every cocktail equally, um, but it's it, it's cool to mess around with. So if you have some cocktail nerds out there that are wanting to try something, I mean, and it makes it actually a little more shelf stable, so you can use it a little bit a little bit longer. The acid content's higher, um, so 
Yeah, win-win there. No, that's great. I mean, it's certainly something that I'm starting to to see more online or hear people talking about more. And like you say, in terms of sustainability and also just cost of ingredients these days, definitely something people should know about. And I think it's the first time that's been brought up on this show. So thanks for mentioning that. Yeah. Um, next one, grenadine. Of course, you've, you've mentioned that. So we're talking, um, you know, that pomegranate juice, normal sugar, 50-50. Um, can you mention some of the ingredients for this cocktail specifically that you might be tempted to also infuse in that syrup, just if people wanted to go that little bit extra? Um, you know, and, and whether you infuse it in the syrup or you do it as like a, a mist or a spray on top, you know, I, I always think of, you know, the Corpse Survivor number two has that that nice absinthe little note, um, absinthe in very small amounts. I know that the flavor of black licorice is very polarizing. So it might be something you don't want to mix into your grenadine, but you have a little, like a little dropper bottle of, you know, of absinthe on the side that you just put a couple of drops on the top so that those who want to experience a little extra flavor, um, great, but you're not, now you're not limited to everybody having to have that. If you have people that just absolutely hate that flavor, um, it, you know, and it's, it, it, you have to be careful with it because they'll take over quickly. So that, that's one of those things. Um, cinnamon might be a nice little add-in. Um, some baking spices. You know, I think that those are all those flavors like go really well together with the pomegranate, the orange, you know, the the whiskey. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think there's a, a way to have a lot of fun. You know, it, if you if you do boil that uh, uh, that grenadine, you know, just to dissolve that sugar more quickly, you know, you can play with 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 uh, boiling in some of those um, those botanicals and those uh, um, spices and i just think mm-hmm. that, that's one of the fun areas you can find a way a lot of ways to adapt the, the flavor profile of a cocktail very subtly but it, but it changes the profile in a really interesting way clove yeah another one. and i think it, i guess it also really comes down to whether from a bar to, you know from a bar perspective whether you're creating that grenadine for this cocktail only right or or a number of different ones that you're going to use in actually you know that bar that i spoke about before they they had a grenadine prop uh, you know proprietary one and and they mentioned it was for a different cocktail had some rosemary in there it actually worked really really well with in you know in that scoff law but interesting thing also love that tip of absinthe because absinthe and rye great friends yeah they are and and you know i think you made a great point that um you know, if you're making, you, know, you don't want to limit yourself. I, I like to make my grenadine completely plain, just, you know, just a plain, you know, uh, the, the, the pom- for this exact reason, because it depends what cocktail I'm making with it. And then I can adapt. I can add a tiny bit of, of, uh, um, absence to the mix, or I can use, I can make a clove studded orange peel, you know, so I can get the, you know, you get the flavor and the aromatic of the garnish. You know, you can garnish with rosemary, you know, like, nice, like garnish, like, like smack sprig yeah. of, of rosemary. So you can get those flavors from the, gar- from the garnish, the aromatic of the garnish that you play with without having to adulterate your grenadine. And now you're stuck with this one flavor, like, okay, great. It's rosemary grenadine, but now I'm stuck with rosemary grenadine and I can't, and, and I, I can't, it's not as versatile. So I like mm. to keep my syrups really pure and then, um, do add-ins and garnishes for, for additional flavors. Mm-hmm. And, and in that vein, and another ingredient I have here, but I know it's not always used, but I have seen it in recipes, bitters, certainly an avenue for customization, but is that something that you would include classically or not? Oh yeah. You know, there's, yeah. and there's so many, there's so many right now. You could just, man, we have, we, we, we have a little bit of a problem. <laughs> 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 um, but, I mean, there's the man that that's I, the first thing that comes to mind is that Scarborough bitters by, by Bitterman's, you know, I mean, what a great, you know, thinking of like rosemary time, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, so, and I, and I think the best way, I think bitters is one of those categories that people 
get nervous talking about because they assume that it's going to make my drink bitter. And one of my best friends, I think, has, has the best spiel about how to understand bitters in cocktails um, is that the bitter part of our tongue is the is kind of the fulcrum of our tongue. So when you add a couple dashes of bitters, it doesn't necessarily make the, the drink bitter overall. It pulls the flavors together to balance so it's, it's the thing that like, if, if you're running the risk of it, maybe being a little too sweet or a little too sour, you add those two dashes of bitters. One of my favorite classics is a Fitzgerald. Um, and it, I mean, just, it's so simple, like gin, lemon, simple bitters, like done. And it is like just one of the most refreshing, you know, summer drinks, you know? Um, and it just, it turns a, um, what essentially a gin lemonade, you know, into a, a, a totally different thing. Um, and so, yeah, so like between Angostura, between, um, you know, Angostura is always just a good you know, go-to. You can find that at any, any liquor store again. So if I was suggesting to college folks about like, Hey, don't be afraid, go grab a bottle of Angostura bitters and just, you know, add a couple dashes and see what it does to a cocktail. But then there's a whole world of bitters out there. Like you could add a million flavors just based on the number of bitters. Scrappies is one of my favorite brands, Bitterman's, um, uh, uh, bitter truth. I mean, I, I mean, all things by all those, by those lines are, are wonderful. So Amazing. And, and just to clarify though, in your, in your version of this cocktail or, or, or the recipe that you subscribe to, you're not reaching for bitters. I'm not reaching for bitters because I'm relying on the bitter oil of the orange as my bitter. So there is a bittering agent. Um, so if you're, you know, and that's something that I think people don't realize that an ex- a good expression, a good healthy citrus expression, there's bitterness to those oils. Um, it's also one of the reasons that, you know, I, you know, when you, a lot of times you'll see bartenders line the outside of the glass. Um, I, I, if, if I ever line the outside of a glass with those oils, um, I, I make sure to do it underneath the glass because those, those oils are very astringent and bitter. And if you, if you rim the glass with it and they put the, the glass to their lips, those oils get on their lips and they can actually kind of burn. Like, I mean, not, yeah, it's really dramatic, but it's but it's very astringent. So you want the aromatic, but you don't want necessarily the um, the overpowering bitter on the rim of the glass. You want that just to be a subtle bittering agent in the drink. Amazing. And and you said this is something. Are you always flaming this this orange uh, expression or? Uh... Um, you know, if, if I'm, if, if I'm in service, you know, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's, it, it, it depends. Like if it's, I mean, if, if it's for a, if someone's standing in front of me, you know, sometimes we have to choose the practical thing, you know, during volume service. It's like, if the guest is standing in front of me and they get an added value out of watching that get flamed, great. It kind of caramelizes those, um, those oils. If it's going to a, a server who is carting that drink out to a guest and they're not going to see the show, kind of why waste the time, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just like, as long as you're making a good expression and you're getting, you're making sure those oils are getting in the drink and it's going to do its job. So. Fantastic. And now I guess just to tie up all of those things together, um, the, the ground that we've covered there, can you outline this preparation from start to finish, including, um, ratios and preferred ingredients, brands, if you will. Um, yeah, take us through your version of this cocktail from start to finish, please. Um, so I, um, like I said, I, I said I amend the the recipe just a bit. Um, me personally, I would reach for um, probably a Rittenhouse rye. Um, that's also pretty pretty easily findable. But you know, um, um, what you're looking for is a is a high rye as opposed to a sweeter rye. Um, two ounces of. Um, mix it in. If you don't have a shaker, you know, um, you can you can use a. a, a a jar with a lid. This is a cocktail you're going to want to shake. You know, the, the general rule of thumb, you know, that everyone knows is that if a cocktail contains citrus, you shake. If it is a 
an all spirits cocktail. If there's no citrus involved, you stir. Um, and, and we could go down a different conversation line about that as well, about why. But really, you're, you're looking to get the proper dilution and to really get the, the shake gets the citrus to bind to the cocktail so it stays in suspension when you pour it. We've all had, we've all had that glass of lemonade that sits on the glass or sits on the table, and then you just see the lemonade sink and the water sit at the top. A proper hard shake will make sure that drink stays in suspension and the first sip tastes like the last sip. Nothing sinks to the bottom. So that said, you know, in a shaker of sorts, um, whether you have an official shaker, Boston shaker, tin shaker, or just a jar with a lid, um, fill that with ice so you know, or, you know, um, oh gosh, I party foul. Um, people will say that, you know, you should always add your, all your ingredients first, then add the ice, you know. That's one of those technicalities during service. I, I, you know, I, I admit I don't care if I'm in a competition. Fine, you know, but just know that that's not that big of a deal. Fill, fill your container with ice. Um, two ounces of rye. I go three quarters of an ounce of fresh lemon juice, three quarters of an ounce of real grenadine, and three quarters of an ounce of, in this case, Dolan dry vermouth. Um, put all those ingredients together. Lid on. Good hard shake. You know, good 15 seconds. Shake it like you mean it. Um, it's normally served up, so you know, uh, or that, and that just means without ice. And it doesn't matter if you're at home. You know, you can put it in whatever cup you want. If you want it on ice, drink it on ice. Drink it how you like it. Traditionally, I would double strain that. I would put that through a finer strainer just to get those ice chips out. Um, that prevents the cocktail from getting further diluted in the glass as those ice chips melt. Um, but again, you don't have to. Don't worry about it at home. Um, and then I would finish that cocktail off with a, a, a good expression of a fresh orange twist. And by that, you just take a swath of a, a fresh orange peel, squeeze gently so that those oils go out over the top of the drink, twist and drop in. And the end, the scofflaw. So the, the, the garnish is being included in the drink there. We're not talking a, a discard situation. You, you could do either. I think, you know, I mean, what, what, if I'm serving it, I, you know, I'm sure in there they're cleaned up real pretty, you know, you can... You can put it on the glass. I mean, that's another fun thing you can play with is, you know, how to, how to put the orange twist, you know, whether you drop it in. Um, during COVID, we actually shied away from putting anything that touched our hands in the glass. Smart. So that's, that's something that you can think about if you're, if you're, if you're just making it for yourself, it's one thing. If you're just making, if you're making it for other people and a service setting, you might consider whether you're touching that garnish. You, it's fine just to express the oils and then toss that garnish off to the cider in the trash so that you're still getting the, the, the aromatic and the bittering agent without having to drop something that you touched with your hands into the actual cocktail. Wonderful. And uh, what would be your preferred vessel here? Just a classic coupe? Absolutely. That, that would be my, and again, I know that not everybody has those at home. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of fun to go to antique stores. They're kind of around and you can kind of find some fun vintage glasses that I think are always, and we, we have, we use all authentic vintage glassware at one of our bars. And that's one of the things I spend my off time doing is going to uh, flea markets and antique malls and even uh, um, thrift stores and finding fun, cool glasses. So that's kind of a fun part of the process too, is just finding cool glassware. But you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you're drinking out of. I mean, if you're having a good time and you're with people that you're having fun with, like make, make that, make that the focus. Mm -hmm. But that, that vintage glassware is certainly good for this, you know, taking us back to 1924 Harry's bar there, you know, like in theme with the original cocktail right there. Absolutely. Wonderful. Um, before we move on to the final section of the show here, Jill, wondering if you have any final thoughts on the scofflaw itself. Um, you know, like I said, I think, you know, looking back over my career, it's one of the, it actually took me longer to, to discover that cocktail than it should have, first of all. So I don't know. And, and I, I, I think that grenadine is the issue. Um, but I think um, it's gotten more, more popular, more common. Um, I think you can, 
I think that's one you can kind of use as a litmus test. If you walk into a cocktail bar and, and the person knows how to make it, you know, you're dealing with somebody who probably has at least a decent um, knowledge of cocktails and you can trust them a little bit. I, sometimes I think people call out those drinks as that test. Um, yeah. it's, it's really, what they're really doing is establishing a sense of trust with you. Like, you know, do, do you really know what you're doing or not? Um, and I, so I, I think that that's, that's one of the, um, I mean, it's slightly obscure, but it's, it's just, um, it's just well-known enough that I think it establishes like, Hey, you know, yeah, I, I, um, I, I know what I'm doing back here. So, uh, let, mm-hmm. let me know what you're ready for. So, yeah. It's so funny that you mentioned that because again, just that that scenario recently this week, the, it was a rye whiskey event. And so on the one hand, I was like, I knew we were doing this recording and I wanted to have one. I wanted to have one professionally made. So I thought, well, you know, this is perfect. On the other hand, I did feel like, do I just look like a bit of an asshole here because there's drinks writers and it's a rye event. So like, I definitely wasn't testing the bartender in any way. I was like, if if it's possible, I would love to try one. You know, I love a Manhattan, but I'd love a scofflaw right now. It's also very hot. So I was like, this is the perfect occasion. Well, and I, and I would say, I guess to add, just to add to that a little bit, I, I would say to younger, you know, especially like aspiring bartenders, um, it is why it's important to know your canon, you know, because it does establish a sense of trust with people. You know, if somebody comes in and they, you know, they ask for a gin pearl, you know, I, even if I, let's say, let's say I'm working at a bar that, you know, um, you know, maybe doesn't have absinthe or, or, or doesn't have mint or, 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 you know, one of the ingredients I can say, if I just say, Hey, you know what? Um, I know by that you're looking for this. I can't make an an exact thing here, but now I know what you're looking for and I can make something similar. You can establish a sense of trust with people. Um, you know, that, that psychosomatically will lead into them enjoying the thing that you make because you've just now kind of established this bond with them. So having, you know, it really is important to have that, that working can, you know, canon knowledge just so that, you know, people, when they come in, um, you know, you, you're, you're just making that interaction a lot easier, you know, like, Oh yeah, well, what I normally like you're speaking their language, you know, they're speaking your language. Um, and, and you can communicate more quickly about what it is that they actually are going to enjoy and you can get them something quicker. So. Yeah. That's no, that's such a great point as well. Just that, that idea of understanding drinks or knowing drinks, even if you're pretty much aware that you might never make them, chances are there will be something in a similar realm on your menu or on previous menus that you know the specs for. Yeah, like one we get, you know, we get calls for death in the afternoons a lot, you know, mm-hmm. at one of our bars, and we don't carry any uh, beer or wine or bubbly. Uh, we are so Swordfish Tom's is a strictly cocktail and spirits bar. That's it, no beer, no wine, no food, and so we don't we don't have bubbly there. Um, and so, but when somebody asks for one, you know, and they say, oh, can can you make a death in the afternoon? As soon as I say, hey, I can't because we don't carry champagne, um, but. I know that you're looking for an absinthe cocktail. Do you trust me to make you something different? It immediately, it just kind of, you know, bridges that gap. You're like, okay, cool. She, she knew what that was. Um, you know, let's, and now she knows what flavor profile I'm going for. You know, we, we can get you there. Amazing. Thank you very much. I love that. I love that little exploration there to, to, to finish off, to round out the scoff law. Um, Jill, now we're going to head into the final part of the conversation. Feeling good for our five questions. Okay. Let's kick it off. And let's kick it off with question number one, of course. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? Hmm. Um, so that's an interesting question. So that, that one is actually, I would say it's shifted in the past year. It depends who's spending the most time working service. You know, I mean, it, you know, the, I... I, I I tend to let the bartenders who are working the most service, you know, I want them to be in front of products that they're excited about selling. Um, so, you know, I would say that that, that 
as I have stepped away from swordfish over the past year and put that in the hands of very capable, very awesome other bartenders, they have different loves than I do. Um, so right now, I mean, they're, of course, you know, the, I've got rum and agave nerds behind the bar right now and, and they're, mm-hmm. they're great. And that's, so what I want them to have what they're excited to sell. And that's probably what in those two categories enjoy the most real estate right now because of that. Um, and, you know, and talk about, but, um, and, and, and our bars are kind of outliers because we have such limited shelf space per category. Our product philosophy is a few things. It's, we want the category well represented along this, the full spectrum without redundancy, because we just don't have the shelf space to have three of the same thing. Um, so like in the agave category, for example, you know, like we might only have, you know, one Madre Cliche, you know, but by one particular brand, I don't have room for four of them, you know, but I will pick the one that I want to represent that, that agave um, category. Um, you know, so same with the rum, you know, your, your spectrum flavors in the rum category, just no redundancy. So, um, yeah, so I would say right now it's those two that occupy probably the most. I mean, whiskey is always going to be, I mean, whiskey is a broad category, obviously, you know, your subcategories, you know, uh, um, but the, the, the thing that I've learned the most is that there's no one product that you absolutely have to carry. Um, there's a chance to talk to people about new products and get people turned on to new things. I love that the Mezcal Rise has opened the door oddly to Isla Scotches. You know, I think that Isla Scotch has, has kind of trailed behind getting people on board. Mm-hmm. And now that people are less afraid because of the giant Mezcal movement that Smokey isn't scary anymore, you know, you can start walking people into other categories through th- through their comfort zones, you know, and they don't realize, oh yeah, this this really isn't that much of a baby step off from this category. So. Mm-hmm. I wonder also too, and this just came up yesterday because we've been doing a lot of rum tasting here at Vinepair for, for some articles we're working on. And I had a couple of agricole rums yesterday that I was like, wow, this is, this could be mezcal in a way. Like I wonder whether there's that natural progression because I think it's a hard sell straight away, but folks are more comfortable with exploring mezcal these days, whether that could be the next stepping stone. I'm not, not sure how you feel about that. Yeah. I mean, there's so, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, granted there's, you know, I'm sure that there's probably, you know, a show coming up for you about, you know, sustainability of, of mezcal, you know, agave, unfortunately it's not a sustainable product. You know, we're seeing sadly this giant rise in demand for it, but just kind of knowing that you're watching a train wreck happen in slow motion, like this is, this isn't going to end well. Um, if, if there isn't some real dedication and work done to preserve the integrity of the quality of the product. Um, so that's another thing too. Like I, you know, um, I, I don't need to have every agave spirit under the sun because I think that there's not a lot to go around and, you know, um, uh, we, we should, we should work to be conscious of maintaining, um, you know, cultural production of products in a way that represents the history of the product, um, uh, in, you know, in addition to the availability of that product. So, you know, it, I think you could ask a, a solid question of, is, is it even, is it even responsible to put a bunch of mezcal cocktails on a menu, you know, and to over promote it when we know that it's, it's going to, it's going to lead to probably not great things. Um, yeah, for sure. Definitely. Yeah important questions that we need to be having these days and and going forward. Yeah. Question number two here. Which ingredient or tool do you think is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? So I thought about this and, and my answer is probably not what you're going to expect. Honestly, self-awareness. Okay. If I, you know, honestly, like the, the tools are one thing. Like, I mean, knowing how to, knowing how to use your tool and like your, your fancy shake, whatever, you know. Um, if I see blunders behind a bar that make me cringe, um, 
It's not knowing how to use your personality to do your job professionally. Self-awareness, paying attention to the dynamics going on in conversations, knowing how, how to be present but not over-present, how not to monopolize people's time. It's like, hey, man, they didn't come in here for a history on the obscure you know, rum, mez, or rum or mezcal or, or whiskey collection that you have. Mm-hmm. They're on a date you know, shut the fuck up and get out of their night. You know, it's like, <laughs> like you, you have to know, like, you know, and, and I think that is a skill set all on its own that, is, you know, and I don't, I don't know where you start to teach that or what seminars we, you know, we, we have, we, we do a really good job as an industry getting people really, you know, excited about products and excited about the newest gadget that they have. Like, Oh, look at these, you know, these bar spoons or these stirring vessels or whatever. Um, and at the end of the day, the one that makes the most impact to people's experience is your personality across the bar, you know, like, I, I don't know, I can teach anybody to make drinks. I can't train you not to be a douchebag. I can't say, like, do you want to make money? Do you, I mean, do, do, do you get that people come in here to not be made to feel stupid because they don't understand your, your obscure vermouth collection? I mean, like, so I would say the most important tool any bartender has is learning how to use, um, conversation, tact, politeness and etiquette, even when you're cutting someone off, even, even the, the, the art of the polite fuck you is a really <laughs> amazing tool to have in your arsenal so that you're never escalating a situation. Um, but you're, you know, I, one of my favorite lines, if, if, if I'm cutting somebody off is like, Hey, you know, I really want you to like me tonight, but I'd love for you to love me tomorrow. And you're not going to love me tomorrow if I serve you another drink. So like, let's have some water. Let's, you know, like there's a way to do it tactfully that doesn't make them embarrassed. That doesn't, you know, cause it cause a conflict. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I, so I think, I think, yeah, I mean, personality tact, um, you know, using your self-awareness across the bar, I think is the most important tool we need to learn how to use better. Amazing. And, and I love that, you know, this kind of blends into the next question, but I love that those are lines for sure that you probably pick up along the way. But I was just curious when, you know, that whole, the idea of self-awareness, is that something that you feel like you went into the industry kind of having a good grasp of naturally, or is that something that developed over time? Is that something you were conscious of developing over time? Um, no, in fact, I was... I'm horrified when I think back to my baby bartending days and it, because I, I had no mentors, um, you know, back then I mean, I'm, I'm 46. I mean, I've been, so this will be year 25. And when I think back to some of the things I said across the bar, you, you know, it's like you, you learn, you learn the acts, like you learn, you know, you learn, it is an entertainment gig to some extent. Um, but I, I definitely had cringeworthy uh, uh, you know, things across the bar that I'm, I'm looking back and I'm embarrassed of. And I, you know, I wish I had had mentors back then that told me, hey, like, you know, maybe learn to shut the fuck up. Maybe mm-hmm. learn to w- walk away. Maybe, maybe learn to understand hospitality more holistically in that, you know, we're here to host memories. It's not the me show. This is not about me. You know, if, if people choose, you know, it's like, especially now, you know, I, I've, I've had, and I've had really incredible specific memories that made me turn that corner. Um, I remember I had a couple one night sitting at my bar who told me that they have a special needs child and they never, they very, very rarely get to go out because babysitting is very difficult for them. They have to have, they have a very few people who are qualified to care for their child that they trust when they, when they go out and they, and, and, and they get to go out about twice a year. And the fact that they chose my bar, mm have that little alone time that they get, um, you know, as a couple, you know, who has the very important job of raising a special needs child was such an honor, you know, um, 
I've had, I've hosted people who are terminally ill and their friends brought them in because this is the last memory they're going to have together. We forget that not everybody's out to party. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's like, Hey, we're trying to keep our marriage together. We've got three kids at home. You know, we only get to go out, you know, once, once every three months, you know, and if they choose your space, um, respecting their time and their privacy and knowing how to read that, knowing how to read the interaction, like how much do they want you involved in this night? Um, and I'm still learning. I mean, I, sometimes I have friends who come in as couples and I still have, I still balance that. I'm like, they're my friends, but it's still their date night, you know? So like I have to gauge, you know, if they sit at the bar, that gives me the, 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 the okay. They, they, they want to have, you know, maybe more conversation time, but if they go and sit at a table, that's their subtle message to me. They don't want me hovering over them. Like they came in to support my business. Awesome. Yeah. But they didn't come in here to see me. This is their date night. So I think those are areas that we can all become more self-aware of. Um, mm. And I think this is going to help me answer one of your com- questions coming up. So yeah. right. <laughs> thank you for sharing. Amazing tool. Self-awareness. I, I love it. So definitely out of left field, but very, very useful. Thank you for that one. Question number three here. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? Um, gosh, a lot of things. I, I, I thought a lot of things. Um, when I, when I read that question, um, so I'm going to say one again, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be from left field. Um, and it's going to be funny because I, I think my, one of my old partners that helped me start, start the other room. And I, I'm so thankful for him because I, that was when I opened the other room, that was, I was not a majority owner. Um, and I, I don't, I don't think he realized I was listening at the level I was when he said this thing but it will never leave me. And he said, there's two ways to get an education. You can go to college or you can be a minority partner. And in that moment, you know, I tell, I, I've, I've told people that now as I'm trying to help more people achieve ownership status and coaching them into those ownership roles and helping them negotiate um, ownership roles with partners if you do want to make the move into ownership, um, if that is your long-term goal, your long game in this industry, I think that has been the most mind-blowing because when we start learning the, uh, the, the rules of, of you know, corporate arrangements and partnerships, it doesn't matter if you're a 49.9% owner, you can get voted out. You can, get, you can be eliminated some way, somehow. So developing the skill set of negotiating majority ownership position um, in, in, if your job is, if your goal is to become an owner someday, I would say me personally, that resonated with me in a way that he probably isn't even aware of. And we're still friends. He's, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, I, I'm still kind of peripherally involved. You know, the, the other room in Lincoln, Nebraska is my baby. Um, I will always do everything I can to make sure that it, it survives. Um, I moved on to do my own thing. And honestly, my, my, my partners there were, were, um, just, just really influential. And I was listening, I was listening in ways they didn't realize I was. And that was, that was in my personal career. That's my biggest piece of advice. Like always be a majority partner. Amazing. Thank you. That's so, so, some great advice right there. Um, question number four, penultimate question. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? So, um, I, I realized I came up with that answer in that, in that, answering question number two, I think. Um, I have yet to be to Kamiko in Chicago. Um, for those who don't know, Julia Momose, um, if I had to pick one person 
you know, for, for, there's different parts of, 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 our, of our operations of service. But if I had to choose one person that I could personally take every bartender to, to watch work, someone who I believe personally embodies hospitality in a way that is truly artful. Um, you know, and I, and I, I don't say this in a, like in a stalker sort of, you know, like obsessive sort of way. I, Julia knows I'm a huge fan of hers. Um, Julia, Julia at Kamiko. Um, I would, I just would love to see her behind, at home behind that bar. I've seen her work in other places. I have yet to see her work at Kamiko, and I, I, I firmly believe it's most likely her, she's in her home yeah. place. Um, you know, she's, she's someone who just masters the art of being exactly where she needs to be when she needs to be there. She is just on as a dedicated hospitality, um, professional. I mean, I mean, I've never seen her out of, out of this mode. Mm -hmm. It's it's like, she just just appears from nowhere. It's like, it's like, you think you need something. And then there's, I mean, there she is. She just sent, she has a sense for a room that I just don't, I haven't seen in anybody else. Well, I mean, you, you, you talk about, you talk about even greater hospitality in general. You know, Julia Momo say there in uh, in the middle or the, the beginning of the pandemic, you know, cocktails to go, this is happening. And, and someone that really spearheaded that movement and allowed it to happen in Chicago and Illinois. Just incredible, incredible professional. Yeah, I mean, I, I agreed. And, and I, I, I can't wait to get to Chicago and see her there because, um, She's, she's been such a force in the industry. And what I love about her is that she's never been one to beg for the camera. She's never been on the awards platforms. And yet the camera has rightfully found her press has rightfully found her. She has earned it through just steadfast consummate professionalism. And, you know, I think anyone, um, you know, yeah, I I mean, she's, she's earned all the awards without going after them Mm -hmm. and she's, she's the real deal. Including including a, a Vine Pair Next Wave Award. I might I have to call that one out because we have awarded her as well, Julia. Uh, I've I've reached out to her. Hope to have her on the show. We have been speaking about it, but you know, coming coming soon to the podcast for sure. Absolutely, I, I love it. She's great. Jill, final question for you today. If you knew the next cocktail you drank or made, sorry, if you knew the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last. What would you order or make? Hmm. So I am a sucker for a good margarita. That sounds so basic, but I, but you know, and it's funny because everybody always asks me what my favorite drink is. And I always say margaritas, which is why I don't drink margaritas. You know, (laughs) (laughs) they're way too easy to drink. If they're made well, um, they, they have awful and amazing results at the same time. Um, you know, lately my thing has been lower ABV drinks. Um, you know, like I, I don't, I don't drink a lot to be honest. It's funny because, I, and oddly, I, I don't, I'll be honest. I don't make cocktails at home. I mean, it's one of those things where so yeah, I just, you know, it's, um, I think you, you get your fill of it at work. Um, my, my new thing lately has been Montenegro daiquiris. Oh um, yeah. Oh my God. Like, it's like, uh, like it's, they're, they're low ABV, you know, so it's, it's a nice alternative. Um, it, it's like, I just, that's, that's been my jam lately. And I think that that's like, if it had to be today, that's probably what I'd go out on. And as what is that two one one that you're you're shaking that up at? Yeah, yeah, you know, you know, and I and I usually back it down like an like I said, like an ounce and a half. You know, yeah. I mean, it's like the proper build would be two one one. And I usually go because the Montenegro is already sweet. Again, I would go a little heavier on the lime, so I would go like probably two one three quarters. Amazing, Jill. Thanks for spending some time with us today. It's been wonderful. It's been a blast. 
the scoff law, incredible cocktail and a wonderful section there at the end. Hey, thanks for having me. This has been really fun. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>